Welcome to I Got Back Up. I'm Talia Lazarus, creator of I Got Back Up. And in August 2021, I was in a road accident. I didn't walk for 10 weeks. I had knee surgery that September and a second double knee surgery in February 22. My journey took me through greatest highs and extreme lows. We don't realize how much we take for granted until it is all taken away. The day I was able to get a glass of water all by myself was one of those little moments in life. Everyone has a story, and as humans, we always talk about when someone is back up or how something happened, but we don't discuss the middle part, the recovery, the journey, the darkness, the continuous roller coaster of ups and downs. It's a taboo subject for most, but here it's not. You have a chance to change your story, your outcome, your next chapter. You can face all your hurdles, obstacles and walls with us and those around you. You are not alone. We recover together. Today I am joined by Robert Common, founder and managing partner of the Beekeeper House, a mental health and addiction treatment centre in Thailand that is part of Southeast Asia's leading mental health organisations. Robert's inspiration to found the business came from his own experiences of drug addiction, trauma and mental health challenges. Robert's story begins at a young age and his journey follows how and why he got to where he is today, how he understood to respond and not react in life and the importance of looking for those brief moments of joy. They can be so small, but they are there and once you see them, you will realise just how much beauty there is out there in life. How are you doing today, Robert? Hi, I'm doing very well, thank you. Um, how are you doing today yourself? I'm good, thank you. I'm doing really well. So where where in the world are you right now? I am in Chiang Mai in northern Thailand at the um, foot of the beautiful mountains here, um, which are strangely um, the foothills of the Himalayas is where they begin. Um, so uh, this is where I'm based, this is where I work, uh, and this is uh, where I call home half the time uh, because I also live in uh, Cambodia as well so I divide my time between the two countries. That's beautiful the Himalayas is somewhere where I absolutely want to come and visit one day (laughs) it's on the list so the floor is over to you we kind of want to hear all about your story and how you have ended up where you are now. My name is uh, Robert um, and uh, I uh, I began I suppose my my journey into into recovery um, uh, starts really from my childhood. Uh, at the age of seven, I was uh, sent away to uh, to boarding school. Um, my parents uh, were a military family, so it was kind of standard to send your your children to to boarding school. And um, uh, unfortunately, at the at the school that I was sent to. Uh, it was a very traditional, almost Victorian-esque type um, type experience, um, and it was. Uh, it took me a long time to realise how my experiences at at that school helped shape who I was um, as an adult later on um, down the line. At the school itself, unfortunately, violence was. Um, uh, fairly predominant. Um, it wasn't a caring or nurturing environment. Um, uh, both violence, um, emotional violence, uh, unfortunately sexual violence um, and neglect, emotional neglect were fairly were fairly commonplace. Um, and as a fairly lost seven-year-old child, um, I not unsurprisingly sort of disengaged with the system and was, and was seen as being um, irksome uh, as a troublemaker um, and as a very angry child, um, which I suppose, given what I was enduring uh, and experiencing in in what is, to all intents and purposes, uh, a boarding school is a form of privileged institutional care, uh, which creates this strange internal dynamic mm-hmm. within oneself because you're told that what you're experiencing is something of privilege, and yet um you find it deeply traumatizing so i was not only experiencing um uh what would definitely be defined as um uh child maltreatment um i was also a survivor of sexual abuse 
um, and also uh, physical abuse from people in positions of power, um, as well as uh, my peers. Uh, and uh, that, I suppose, if I fast forward, takes me to when I, I changed school from a prep school. So in the private system, you have prep schools and you have public schools. And ironically, they're not public schools mm-hmm. at all. Um, uh, I went to uh, I went to a public school um, and uh, there I met um, uh, an individual uh, who was my housemaster. And um, I certainly credit that particular man, that individual, um, uh, to rescuing really um, me as an individual. I've been the bottom of my class and everything. I failed at sports. Uh, I remember my my housemaster at my previous school saying to me, "You'll be lucky if you." get an O-level in, in, in maths or a GCSE in, in maths. That's how stupid you are. i never forget those words. That's how stupid you are. Um, and then I, I went to this new school and uh, this wonderful man came into my life and he, he believed in me and he could also identify in me something which was, was deeply, deeply vulnerable. Um, and he saw something uh, which others, others hadn't seen. Um, and he, he, he nurtured me um, and he took care of me. And although it was still uh, a residential setting, he helped ameliorate mm-hmm. some of the, the, the damage um, and um, the pain and the angst that I had um, begun to uh, experience as a result of my, my, my more formative experiences. Mm-hmm. And I progressed through that. Uh, school and interestingly enough I then thrived I did very well I got great marks in my GCSEs Um, I uh, went on to do very well at sports I kind of became all the things that I never thought that I would uh, ever achieve I was I was captain of the rugby team Um, uh, I was captain of the hockey team Uh, (laughs) uh, and I remember everyone in the family being incredibly surprised that this sort of angry um failure of a child uh, was suddenly doing suddenly doing quite well I suppose that's the lesson from that is sometimes it just takes one person in in an individual's life um to kind of help create and affect change um and that that stayed with me um uh it stayed when, when I left and and then um and then I experienced my 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 biggest um first adult setback in life which was I I was all set to join the army um I'd been through all the training I'd done all the requisite courses and qualifications etc and I was I was due to join a a regiment in the army and um as a as a gay man who had um spent um my teenage years uh wrestling with my sexuality um uh it was really hard for me because I had to say to uh, the guy who was the colonel of the regiment, um, look, I'm gay. I've just spent the last six years of my life trying to reconcile that fact. And you mix abuse in with that as well. I'm not about to turn around and get back into um, the proverbial closet um, because of this career. And he was actually very understanding. He just said, well, it's fine. You just don't tell anyone. Um, which was, I suppose, it, it then was considered to be a relatively um, liberal response. Um, obviously, now in, in the <laughs> century we live in, we know that's not necessarily yeah. the case. But even then, I, I thought, well, actually, no, I, I'm not going to do that. Um, I, I'm, I, I need to be true to who mm-hmm. to who I am. Uh, so I I ended up saying, no, I'm, I'm not going to join the army. So I ended up walking away from that. And my whole my whole teenage years have been set around, I was going to join the army. That's what I was going to do. That's what my family did. Um, so I suddenly yeah. had to start re-evaluating where I was going to go with my life. Um, uh, and then what happened was I, I moved to London, where obviously um, the pavements are, are, are made with gold. Uh, and I thought I'd have uh, an, a, an incredible time um, in in London, and I and I did have an incredible time in London. Probably a little bit too incredible, arguably, because I got pulled um, very rapidly <laughs> into into the um, the, the sort of uh, mid to late nineties club scene, uh, and that's where my relationship with mm-hmm. with drugs um, and alcohol, uh, but primarily drugs, began, um, and. 
initially it was hedonism it was uh, escaping the norm it was being part of a minority population where i'd found my people i'd found people who accepted me and they loved me for who i was and they celebrated me for who i was uh, and that was and that was that was great it was vibrant it was exciting um but there was still a lot of residual trauma that was in the background of my uh, of my mind around my childhood and my formative years at my first school that was still very much in the background and i i i think for for want of a better phrase went completely off the rails and um uh, drugs mm-hmm. became my source of not feeling the things that I had managed to avoid for, for so long. And they became a much more effective tool um, for me to be able to run away from run away from my past that I wasn't able to to accept or to understand because I hadn't reconciled any of it. I hadn't seen anyone who was a professional. Um, and at that juncture, my, my, my drug taking got out of control um, and I, I overdosed and I ended up um, in uh, Charing Cross Hospital uh, in the uh, what would, I suppose we defined as, as, as the addicts ward, which was a pretty, pretty terrifying experience. Although, you know, as you'll learn when you get to know me, I can always see the funny side of most things. And uh, I remember speaking to the doctor after my overdose. Uh, and he came up to me and said, are you Robert? And I said, yes. I said, being British, obviously, I apologised immediately for being there. Um, And uh, he said, oh, it wasn't a matter of what was in your system. It was a matter of what wasn't in your system. He said, you literally had taken so much. um, We couldn't really discern why um, you ended up in the situation that you were in because you'd taken so much of so many different drugs. Um, uh, and you would have thought that would have been the wake up call that I needed. Um, but unfortunately, um, yeah. it wasn't, uh, I, I unfortunately had to trip over, uh, uh, mm-hmm. a, a few more, um, issues in life and until I, I, I came to some sort of, um, uh, came to my senses. Um, I then, I, I went to my father who lived in Norway at the time. Uh, he worked for NATO. I spent some time with him. Um, and uh, that's when I uh, reached a, a crisis point again in my life where I was so unreconciled with uh, my sexuality and my previous um, history with regards to my childhood experiences that I, 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 I couldn't cope. Mentally, I was um, deteriorating rapidly and no one around me knew what to do because I hadn't told anybody. Uh, and... The, the first person I, I, I did tell was my brother, who has been a rock in my life, but he's not a trained professional and he didn't know what, what to do with that information. And that was when I first um, tried to uh, take my own life when I was um, staying, with my, staying with my father. Uh, I don't remember the details greatly, but I, what I do remember was just the sense of total confusion, fear and, and disconnection with who I was as a human being and a lack of a lack of any direction uh, i didn't know who i i didn't know who i was and who i was meant to be and who i was trying to become and then i was i was fortunate in in many regards because i had uh, some fantastic grandparents on my on my mother's side and they had played a very significant role in taking care of me when I was a kid, because when I had um, half terms and breaks from school, when I got suspended from school for being very naughty, um, they were the ones who would take care of me. So I, I, I always had a, a wonderful relationship with my grandparents, who were extraordinary, beautiful people. My, my grandfather was a, a Second World War hero. My grandfather was a, uh, my grandmother, sorry, was a, a sort of joy de vivre, but also extremely protective, a lioness. Um, and life with them was always um, uh, wonderful and beautiful. And you can probably see on the smile on my face when I when I think about them. Uh, and I was going to yeah. go visit them, and my um, I it really it, it it rained when I was walking through Portsmouth when I was going to go and visit my grandparents. Um, and and because it was raining, mm. I um, I took shelter um, in the nearest shop that I could find because it was one of those really heavy downpours, and I. I took shelter and I'd walked into the mm-hmm. University of Portsmouth's um, sort of selling shop, their kind of frontage where they 
they pitched um, uh, to potential students. And I was not interested in going to university. And then a woman came up to me and said, what are you interested in? And I said, psychology. And she said, oh, we have a new course starting in psychology and criminology. Are you interested in it? And the honest answer was, no, <laughs> I'm not. But I took the brochure, being British, I didn't want to be rude. So I took the brochure. <laughs> the, the rain stopped. Um, I, made, uh, I made my way to my, par- my, my grandparents' house. And then um, my grandma saw the brochure, saw an opportunity he needs to go to university. And, and she basically said, you're going to university. And I was like, no, I'm not. I'm, you know, I'm going to go and live my carefree life up in London. And she was like, <laughs> you're not. Um, and so I said, okay, I'm not. I'm going to go to university. Uh, so I did. Uh, I went and I, I did my uh, uh, double honours degree in psychology mm-hmm. and criminology. Um, and that kind of began mm-hmm. to reset a path in my, in my life. And uh, what I found myself uh, doing was I moved to London very briefly. I had a relationship, um, a, a short-lived marriage. Um, uh, and then I, I found myself drawn to working um, in uh, child protection and, and, and social work. Uh, and I particularly uh, started focusing on working with children who were living in institutional care or living in orphanages. So there's rather an obvious link there, which funnily enough took me quite a long time to make. So the focus of my work for for many years uh, was working in child welfare and child protection and family services. So I I did that for for many years and it took me all over the world. I was lucky enough to travel to West Africa. I lived in East Africa. I lived in Uganda. I spent time uh, living in Kenya. I worked in India. I worked in Sri Lanka just after the genocide. Um, I was it, it was it was an incredible uh, life, but I was kind of on this very deep seated, visceral mission to try and um, uh, affect change within um, child protection agencies' work. Uh, and it was almost like this invisible hand was mm-hmm. kind of pushing me. Uh, and it took me to, to, to living in Uganda, as I, as I mentioned to you. And it was when I settled in Uganda, I thought I, I could make this place my home, which was ironic given I then had to go back into the closet because of um, the significant levels of um, kind of structural homophobia in, in Uganda. Uh, however, I was so committed to the cause of the work that I was doing with respect to working with children in residential care and trying to get them back into families, um, foster care, um, domestic adoption, and such like, um, that I was willing to kind of sacrifice that part of my life, uh, which, if you think about it, is a very significant part of mm-hmm. who I am. And it, that was the first time that I thought, actually, I'm beginning to realise that maybe my problems are becoming, um, that they're bubbling to the surface too much, uh, where I'm starting to, they're starting to become mm-hmm. unmanageable for me. And then um, I hit another roadblock. Uh, In Uganda, they passed the Anti-Homosexuality Act, uh, which meant uh, that I had to leave Uganda. Uh, And I didn't leave Uganda in a way that was planned. Um, My home was there. Um, I just built my dream house. Um, All my money was there. All my clothes were there. Everything was there, my life. Yeah. And I was just visiting Nairobi for the weekend to do some work with a child protection agency that worked in a, um, a community called Kibera. And I had a phone call from my best mate in um, Uganda saying, you've been named in the newspaper as being a gay man, which is what was happening. Um, they were naming um, uh, people in, in the papers. Um, so and the, the the day after the the bill was passed um a newspaper did the top 100 homosexuals and put pictures of them and, and named them which obviously put those people in severe danger i didn't make it into the top 100 um i was named um uh the following weekend in the saturday edition um so i'm still a bit annoyed about that i didn't make it into the top 100 so i can still make light of it but i was still named and <laughs> i was in i was in nairobi and i had this phone call and my friend said you've been named um and i was like shit everything in my life is 
is there, my money, my mm-hmm. clothes. I literally had two pairs of knickers, a pair of jeans, yes. two T-shirts, and a hoodie, and a pair of flip-flops. That is all I had. And I had my passport. And I sat in Nairobi, and I thought, shit, I just lost everything. I can't get the money I have in the bank out of my account. Mm-hmm. I've lost my house. I've lost all my personal possessions. Uh, the relationships, my, my 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 kind of adopted family there, everything is gone and I can't go back. Uh, I spoke to the embassy and they said, we cannot guarantee your safety, mm. which is, you know, obviously code for don't come back. I was lucky. I had options. I had Ugandan friends mm. um, who, who didn't have the options and they didn't have the passport that I had. Um, so I then, uh, I made the difficult decision to return to the UK because I didn't have any any other options um and again this this huge shattering of my life uh, where i i I had lost everything i mean it's definitely one way of doing a bit of a clear out minimizing your life but i i again i i lost my identity um but the armor that i had developed um when i was a child um in that prep school was the skills, the strengths that I developed told me that I had to find a way of, 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 of fighting through this. And I, I was very lucky that I, I ended up being offered a job with a great organization that worked in human rights around LGBT issues um, uh, and also um, other key populations in the public health space. Um, so I ended up working for them for a year and living in Brighton, which was, which was great. Um, but still, I hadn't dealt with the issues, the mental health issues. My mental health was declining and declining and declining because mm-hmm. I was dealing with every major change and every major confrontation in my life, and I was never recovering. I was never giving myself the space to recover. It was just forward-facing. I've got to survive. I have to survive. I didn't think about what thriving was. It was just surviving. Mm-hmm. I was reacting. Um and then an opportunity came up to work in Cambodia. Um, and even though I'm quite well-traveled, I won't lie, um, I knew nothing about Cambodia apart from what everyone knows, which is the Khmer Rouge. Um, uh, and that was really the sum total of it. Um, I've been on, to Thailand on a, on a beach holiday, and that was really the sum total of my knowledge of Southeast Asia. So I was... I was offered a, a fantastic job with one of the world's largest um, uh, children's charities, um, doing a job uh, which was really my dream job, which was care reform at a national level, working with some of the most brilliant, talented individuals um, in in this social workspace and mental health space yeah. uh, that um, I could ever have wished to to have worked with, and it was it was amazing. Um, it was fabulous. And then I met a guy um, who I fell in love with. Um, and we uh, flew to New York. Um, and then that's when things again began to not necessarily fall apart. But again, it was a big roadblock. So on the day that I got married in the morning, um, uh, I found a, a lump on my testicle. So I thought, well, I'm not going to share this information mm-hmm. on the special day because it might put a bit of a downer on everything. So I'm just not going to tell anyone. So again, my my immediate reaction, my reaction, if you like, was right. I'll keep this to myself. I'm, you know, I'm going to suppress it, which is what I did. Um, thankfully, I was staying with a friend of mine who is a, a medical doctor, and he said to me, "Don't panic." Just get back mm-hmm. to Cambodia and then see a doctor and then start your treatment there. Don't start it here. So I went back from New York uh, and I went to Cambodia and that's when I um, had the checks done. And I had to fly to Bangkok to uh, to have surgery on. Uh, so but I had to have a, a testicle removed. Um, uh, one of my best friends, Albert, he was in Bangkok, so he took care of me for a, for a couple of weeks whilst I was there. Having that kind of operation um, is, is, is quite painful, um, and you definitely feel quite vulnerable afterwards. Uh, so he helped me through uh, a difficult 
uh, a difficult time. We managed to see the funny side of it. We ended up having a wonderful two weeks with each other, although I was fairly immobile um, uh, after the operation. And uh, and then I and then I flew back to Cambodia, and there was uh, uh, a team uh, retreat that was happening. So this big organisation that I worked for, we had a big team. It was around twenty people or so, and they were going down to a beautiful part of southern Cambodia. And I, I'm not going to name names in this because the people who I'll be mm-hmm. talking about, they have their own families and their own sure. stories. So, um, yeah, I. I went back to Cambodia and I couldn't go on, on this retreat with my, my team and some of the people on my team, especially one individual, they weren't just colleagues. They were people that were also advocates and they were passionate about what it was that we were doing. Um, They really wanted to affect change in individual children's lives that were facing um, neglect, poverty, abuse, Mm -hmm. Um, these individuals were really cause-driven. They were special. They were incredible. And you'll probably realise that I'm using the past tense. So I uh, mm. said I, I can't leave um, Phnom Penh, the capital of Cambodia, because I've just had this major surgery. If anything goes wrong with me medically, um, there is no healthcare down where you're going. So um, that wasn't a problem. They said no problem. So off they went and they had a great weekend and uh, or they had a great week or a few days down there. And then they were coming back and it was a Friday afternoon. And um, that's when everything changed in my life, um, which was odd given so much had already happened to me. But this was really the moment that was a kick up because uh, the people that I worked with and I spent so much time working with and we were united in so many ways, both personally um, and professionally. Um, there was a phone call. And I remember I decided to leave work early on a Friday afternoon, like you do when no one else is in the office. So I thought, excellent, my excuse to go home early. So I went home and then I, I got a phone call from one of my colleagues and he was screaming down the phone. And I was what the fuck is going on? Like he was He was screaming in a way that was so visceral and... I just couldn't understand him. And then I got a phone call from a colleague saying there's been an accident. Um, it doesn't sound like it's too bad, but it's, there's been an accident. So I, I knew immediately that something terrible had happened. And I, um, I drove to my office. And when I got to the office, um, there was chaos. And in Cambodia, there isn't a great healthcare system. And we were just getting bits of information here and there. And then we we knew that we had to um, go down to the referral hospital where where people's bodies were being sent. And as we were driving down there, um, the phone call started coming in where we were being told who 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 had died, um, and a total of uh, three of my colleagues whilst I was driving down there. Um, we were told they were um, no longer with us or they had, they had died. They had been killed in the accident. They were in a bus. Sorry, I should rewind. They were in a bus coming up from um, the seaside town back up to Phnom Penh and it had gone off the road. And then I got to the hospital and I have some, I have first aid training and it became apparent to me that I had to triage the people in the hospital because there just wasn't the capacity to do it. So then another member of staff who was on my team, I was very close to, she died when I, um, when I got there. And then uh, it was a matter of getting everyone out of the hospital and sent to Phnom Penh where there's a proper hospital. Mm-hmm. So we had to triage those who had made it to the hospital and we had to move them. And we were, there were ambulances, so we were literally not hijacking cars, but we were sort of like stopping cars and um, putting down their back seats and saying, please, here's some money. Here's a person. I'll go with you. To, please take our, our friends to the hospital. Um, and they and they did. And I think I was down there for about six hours. So four, four people in total died um, on that day. Um, and... 
um, many others on the team had life-changing in injuries. Um, and the world stopped and someone who I loved deeply um, was killed in that accident. And then we still ran a huge program. So we had to carry on working because I knew that the people who'd lost their lives in that accident would say to me, you need to carry on doing this work. You can't stop it because of what's happened. So we had to carry on working. And uh, it was it was like everything happened in slow motion and there was no time to absorb the loss or losses and understand it. But I, I knew through my training in mental health and also in social work as well, that there would be a storm coming in terms of post-traumatic stress. Um, uh, and the, 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 the manifestation of trauma amongst the people that I work with and I loved and that's when I decided that I wasn't going to allow this accident to sit in singularity and just be a traumatic event. I decided that I was going to try and create something positive mm -hmm. from it. Um, and it was apparent to me that there was no, there was no way that anyone could respond um, from a mental health point of view to, to what happened on that day. Um, and we're only, well, it was only a few years ago, so it's still quite raw. Um, so from there, I decided to leave who I was working for. Um, uh, and I decided that I was going to take a, a, a couple of months out, maybe try and think about where I was going with my, with my life. And I decided to set up a company called The Beekeeper and The Beekeeper House, which is a mental health organization in Southeast mm -hmm. Asia. Um, uh, and it, it specializes in working with people with complex mental health issues, especially around trauma um, and also around um, areas such as addiction and, and, and other mental health issues. So I was, mm -hmm. I was trying to create this company in the kind of chaos of my life. Uh, and, and then some profoundly unfortunate things happened which to be honest with you are so awful that they're they are quite comical in in a way and i can i can looking back now see the funny side of it so i in the kind of the chaos of me trying to set this new company up um my incredibly supportive husband had found mm -hmm. a property for me and stuff like that and um uh this became the beginning of my my recovery um it became the beginning of my journey back into buddhism uh into spirituality um it became the the beginning of me not reacting but responding to what had happened in my life uh at, but then two things got mm -hmm. in the way um which was uh, i was on the building site of the beekeeper. And then I had a, I, the left-hand side of my face went and I had a stroke. Uh, and I was still in my late 30s at mm -hmm. that point. And uh, it, was, it was very serious. And I, I almost lost my life. Um, I was very lucky that I recognised the symptoms very quickly and the person that I was with recognised them. So I was able to get to hospital in less than 45 minutes. Um, and they give you this big injection um, and because it's a private hospital, um, this, you know, they're giving you the injection, but there's someone with a credit card machine you know, over the doctor's um, arm going, can you pay for this injection? Um, which is the life-saving injection that you need. Obviously, we have this wonderful National Health Service in the UK, but when you're not in the UK, you have to pay for what you're getting um, done. And that includes emergency care. So you, you, I, was, I remember getting my credit card out of my pocket mm -hmm. like that, whilst I was, because my, it wasn't my left hand, because that wasn't working. It was my right hand. And then putting the card into the machine whilst the injection <laughs> was going in, which was slightly bizarre and strange. Yeah. But then... Um, so I, I spent a couple of days in ICU. <laughs> they were they were happy, and my friends were like, "Oh my God, Robert, mm -hmm. what has happened to you now?" 
And then this is where it becomes even more ridiculous. And I, I know that you'll be able to certainly um, uh, uh, understand this. So I, I went down, interestingly, and, and deliberately to the place which is called Kep, um, which is on the south coast of Thailand, uh, not Thailand, Cambodia, sorry, um, where my, my colleagues and my friends had spent their last night. Um, before the accident that's where they went on their retreat mm-hmm. so I thought I've had this stroke my doctor said to me go and spend a week away recovering peace quiet on the coast so I did that mm-hmm. um, but being the little fidget pants that I am I decided to uh, rent a motorbike <laughs> um, and go to a local pharmacy because the beekeeper up in Phnom Penh needed a first aid kit so I thought I'd make use of my time and buy a first aid kit. And the irony of this is not lost on me. So when I was pootling my way back from the pharmacy, going back to um, my hotel, I was run over by a four by four. Um, and I mm-hmm. was not just run over, I went under it. Um, and I uh, had no memory of what happened. Um, I woke up in Mm. the provincial hospital um, and my uh, face was a mess. My eye had, um, you can't see the scar um, now so much. Um, I I knew that I was in a very serious condition. Um, I gained consciousness and there were no medical services per se there. So then I had to, I knew I had to get out of the hospital. Mm-hmm. So I, I managed to get myself out of the hospital with two broken legs, a broken arm. Um, both my wrists were broken. My, I, I, so many bones were broken. I had uh, three huge fractures on my uh, skull. I had um, an arachnoid hematoma. Um, uh, and I had some significant internal injuries. I managed to get myself back to the hotel using a tuk-tuk. Um, and then I, I went into the hotel and they took one look at me and said, you need to get an ambulance now. And I, I at this point, I didn't realize how serious it was because after an accident, you tend to, not, you're in shock, so you don't feel what it is that's going on. And then mm. I eventually got into a taxi <laughs> to Phnom Penh, which is a, a three-hour journey, and then it occurred to me that I probably wasn't going to make it. Um, I had time to assess mm-hmm. my injuries, um, and I, luckily enough, I I did make it, uh, but I was back in the same hospital, mm-hmm. and I remember the look on the nurse's face going, what are you doing back here? Um, and I said, um, uh, I, I'm back here. For, I'm back here because the food was so good. And I remember that, that kind of confused look on their face. Um, so I still had my sense of humour, <laughs> although I was um, I, I was so seriously injured. Um, uh, I, I lost track of how many bones were mm. broken in my body. Um, I was back in ICU. I was. Um, uh, I was I was very close to to losing my life. Uh, I couldn't mm. walk. I couldn't move. Most of my body breathing was agony. Uh, existing was agony. Um, and I remember in the drive up um, from Cap um, to the hospital, the main hospital that actually had good quality services. I remember thinking, "I'm going to die," and reaching for my phone to send a message to my son and a message um, to my family members saying, if I don't make it, I want you to have a voice recording of me. And then I reached my phone, and of course I realised I didn't have my phone on me mm. because it had been taken off me um, uh, after the accident. Um, and I, I had half an hour of going, well, this is it. Uh, and I just thought, I can't die now. Not after not after everything that's happened, I can't. I've got to somehow mm. make all the things that I'm trying to do happen. Um, and that was the the turning point for me. Um, I uh, had previously gone into um, treatment for my mental health issues and my 
my issues around um, using um, drugs. Um, I had um, tried to turn so many corners um, and yet I had failed to to do it. But that was really the seminal moment where I thought, now I've, I've got to. Um, you aren't just doing this for your family and, and, and your loved ones. You're doing this for yourself. Um, and I remember lying in bed, like, it was almost like I was crucified because they put you, I don't know if you've ever seen it, when they kind of put you in traction. Um, so maneuvering yourself around anything is, um, is, mm-hmm. is almost impossible. And to be honest, the whole thing's quite demeaning as well. But whereas I can laugh about it now, it definitely, it, it transformed my whole sense of my own mortality. Um, uh, and reinforced mm. to me the very groundlessness of our lives um, and how we we have a responsibility not only to our loved ones but to ourselves to make the best of what, what it is that we've got. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and it made me more determined to create a company and an organisation that could help people who uh, who had gone through not entirely dissimilar things to me um, but we're also having their own their mm-hmm. own struggles. For me, recovery wasn't just about sobriety. Um, it was about a spiritual journey and reconnecting with who I was um, and who I also wanted mm-hmm. to try try and be, and also understanding about what living in the moment truly actually means. Uh, and then. Mm-hmm the idea of not reacting to things but actually responding to things and that was when my journey into buddhism became much more significant and, not, and much more um profound uh in in, in many ways and, and not that i want to make this conversation about kind of religion um because everyone has their own their own path and their own and their own journey mm-hmm. um but i just looked back and i was like this this has not been a good 10 years. Um, it's been an amazing 10 years, but my God, the losses have just carried on stacking up. And Robert, you only have so many lives left. Fast forward, I'm having a quick medical checkup. And I know this often when I tell the story, it sounds so ludicrous that people don't believe it. I'm having a medical checkup and my doctor does a scan. And sure enough, the other testicle has got a problem and this is in the middle of covid um so the beekeeper in Mm -hmm. in cambodia was actually doing very well during covid um uh so then uh another tumor had 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 developed so i had to have that removed as well uh and at that point, I knew that I was responding to things better in life because when I got that news, um, which is it's quite big news um, for any individual, uh, my reaction mm. was one of grat- one of gratitude. People said to me, "How do you feel? Like you're going into in for surgery on the other side, uh, and they're going to chop chop it out," um, and. I said, do you know what? All I feel now is gratitude. And they were like, what? Gratitude? You feel grateful? And I said, yeah, yeah. I mean, at least <laughs> I have the resource. I have the resources to do something about this issue. I can do something about it. I'm not reacting about yeah. this going, poor me, poor me. Like, I just survived being splattered by a car, a stroke, um, uh, all sorts of other issues which i've i've touched upon and and now this mm-hmm. is is something that i can deal with i can respond to in a way that's well thought through you know i should caveat this that i had a whole lot of therapy um during this three to four year um period <laughs> which was key yeah. um in my being kind of, I suppose, in some ways, I don't know if resilient is the right word. Um, uh, Mm -hmm. And then 
yeah, I, and, and then I, I, I recovered from, from that particular surgery, and then I had to have an additional surgery on top of that. Um, anyway, I'm conscious that I've, I've talked a great deal, uh, and I haven't afforded you the opportunity to ask me any questions um, about <laughs> that plethora of experiences that you must be thinking, oh my goodness. <laughs> No, not at all. Not at all. This was, uh, it's been, uh, honestly such an interesting, um, story to listen to. Um, it, it choked me up a couple of times, I have to say, <laughs> but, uh, no, of course it's, uh, I think what I, what I love the most is when you said about it's responding, not reacting, um, and you've said it quite a few times because I've heard a lot of people say a similar thing in a, in a different context or a different way, but I've never heard someone phrase it like that. And that, that, that is it. It's, it's responding and not reacting and how, how getting your mind, getting your mindset to shift into that kind of state. Yeah, very much so. And I, I, I talk about my journey into, into Buddhism a lot, but really, uh, maybe a more digestible way is actually is 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 thinking about it through more like mindfulness practices and i i know that a lot of people talk about mindfulness yeah. and the importance of meditation and the importance of things like yoga but these these things in life that were considered very much on the periphery of people recovering from traumatic experiences because trauma is something that sits in the body um uh, yeah. yoga practice meditation i'm very big into my tibetan sound bowls um these mindfulness practices helped me start to develop a much more meaningful understanding and relationship with my thoughts so uh, in psychology we kind of call it almost like metacognition mm -hmm. which is when you're thinking about your own thoughts so my mindfulness mm -hmm. practice started really to to start focusing on my relationship to the thoughts that I was, I was having. Um, and throughout mm. this whole process, there was a huge amount of grief mixed in with it, not only through the loss of those that I loved in the accident, but I also lost friends um, in that time. So uh, the son of a, a good friend of mine um, passed away tragically. Um, a very, very good friend of mine um, from London passed away. And then Albert, who I referenced earlier, um, who had taken me through the first step, he passed mm -hmm. away last year um, in October. So that's still, uh, sorry, well, yes, it's last year, October. Um, <clears throat> so that's very, very recent. Um, and my grandfather passed away as well, and my, and my uncle yeah. uh, too. But my relationship to to grief has has changed and evolved significantly, and I think the way that everyone experiences this grief is totally unique to them, um, and uh, yeah. and I, I respect that enormously. Um, but what I've found through everything that I have experienced is that in amongst all of it there has always been consistently moments mm. of humour. Uh, there always are. And maybe that's the British part of the way that I think about things. Um, maybe my humour is <laughs> a little bit dark sometimes, but do you know what? It's got me through a hell of a lot, so I'm still going to run with it. Um, yeah. uh, there's, always, there's always loving kindness somewhere. There's always, there's always some beauty in something... Um, however tragic and awful, there is always something there and you just need to look for it. You need to be mindful of it and you need to be active um, in your seeking of it because it's, it's not so much necessarily that I feel like I'm a victim or I feel particularly like I'm a survivor. There are days that I feel like I'm a victim of sexual abuse. There are days that I feel like I'm a survivor of sexual abuse and I won't allow anyone to tell me who it is or what it is that I should be feeling and how I should be feeling about it, because that's my experience and it's not theirs. Um, uh, but what I, what I do know is that my journey into things like mindfulness-based practices have made 
an enormous mm-hmm. impact on my life and have become also a huge focus of my my academic studies as well. So I mean, I've gone on to kind of do my PhD and uh, and I, I'm I'm really kind mm-hmm. of looking into it in um, uh, in, in I suppose more of a scientific research way yeah. uh, to to a certain degree. Uh, but um, for me, recovery has been like an incremental process of learning about myself, appreciating who I am, developing self-compassion, being compassionate to myself, but then also being compassionate to the people around me as well. Because I think when something terrible has happened, it's easy to blame. It's easy to say, I need to forgive you. I need to, you know, whatever it might be. And I always think that that's, for me anyway, it's a dangerous route to go down because forgiveness comes from a position of power. Um, I choose to forgive you. Um, Mm -hmm. And what that doesn't do is it doesn't create the question of why what happened to you in the first place happened. Um, Because I I often use this analogy that if something, Mm -hmm. if someone does something to you, which you perceive as awful, then you can go down the road of, I need to forgive you because you're a terrible person and you've done this. Or, you know, in Buddhism, we try and look at compassion. Like, what is it that's happened to you as an individual that you have done this to me or to others? Like, we're all born mm-hmm. um, innocent uh, and we are the sum of our experiences. So as opposed to becoming yeah. angry about the world or angry about things that have happened, I try and be compassionate about it. And I try and be compassionate mm-hmm. with people. And, I, and don't get me wrong, that might sound really worthy and it is hard to practice on a day-to-day basis. Um, but for me, out of all the <laughs> things that have happened to me, you know, if you were to say to me, what do you feel about the person who abused you at school sexually? I would. I can honestly turn around and say I have compassion for that individual yeah. because I don't know what happened to. I don't know what happened to them in order for them to do what they did to me. Um, because I know that if I spend my life thinking about how I could forgive them, it's 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 not going to get me anywhere. Um, yeah. And if I want to thrive in this life, um, and do justice to the people that came into my life and now have left it sadly, and do justice to their memories. Being angry yeah. um, uh, and not being compassionate wouldn't wouldn't be fair to them. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's it's incredible how you've been able to develop that mind uh, mindset and that kind of the frame of mind. Um, and in a like you said, whether it's a religious way or a spiritual way, you're not kind of how you've done it. It's it is fantastic, and compassion is. A lot of people don't always have that sort of compassion. Um, for for you know they they do for similar situations, but they don't always have it to, for what you were saying for the people that that you know that might have done them wrong or you know might make them feel angry. And you're right when you said you know what you know what whether you feel like a victim or a survivor, that isn't for anyone else to tell you what you are to feel because it's for you to feel because it's your life and you're the main character in your life and you feel it how you want to feel it. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, And I I think when we think about recovery, um, it's important that we think about how we can take those experiences and and thrive from them. Uh, and I, weirdly, yeah. and this might sound like a bit of a strange segue, but I'm I'm going to go there, and you can edit it out if you want to. But most people who experience deeply traumatic events don't go on to develop post traumatic stress disorder. They go on to develop um, post trauma optimism uh, because they 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 have the opportunity to reflect upon their lives. Um, and that's, it's a little interesting psychology, yeah. little factoid for you, but I, it's, it's one of the things that I do, I do find, I do find fascinating, um, about the human mind and the human condition. Cause I do think that we are, I do think genuinely most people will try and make the best of it, um, uh, and try and see where the, yeah. they can, 
they can leverage their experiences for for for, for self improvement in many ways. Um, and I know that I'm probably an eternal um, yeah. optimist in life, but I really I really do believe that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's uh, you really do learn something new every day because I hadn't heard that phrase either. And it's it's incredible how many people I've spoken to, not just with regards to I got back up, but just in life in general, when you're right, when they have been through something, how optimistic they are after. And you hear so many people say to them, wow, you're so positive. Wow, you're so optimistic. Wow. Like, wow. Um, and. I mean, yeah, I've obviously thought it through myself with what I've been through and why I've got to where I've got to. But when you hear other people say it as well, post-traumatic um, optimism, that's a beautiful phrase. Uh, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's very true because you do, you, you reflect and you think, okay, how do I change? How do I change this? How do I start again? And how do I, you know, create something new? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's like one of those things, you know. Unfortunately, yeah, yeah. You, you know, nobody wants to go through realistically what they've been through. But had they not have been through what they've been through, they wouldn't have this optimism of life or whatever they've done afterwards. So, yeah, yeah, and I think we can. Like, what what I've tried to do with it is apply it not only in my personal mm -hmm. life but also my professional life which is why I, I, I set up the beekeeper mm -hmm. and the beekeeper house which is why I'm, I'm you know in in, yeah. in Thailand because we run a, a treatment center which is based on all of those principles of compassion um, and self-compassion yeah. and 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 one of the things that I often say to people and it, it, make, it makes me laugh quite often because I'm sure you've heard the phrase you can't love anybody else until you love yourself um and yeah. my, 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 my riposte to that is I don't, I don't think it's about loving yourself. Um, I think what is a much greater challenge. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think when you go through something so acute or chronic or painful that you become better at this, which is don't, it's not about loving yourself. Try making friends with yourself. Try just being friends with yourself. Yeah. And that's a much more interesting yeah. way of viewing life. Like, who am I and how do I, how do I look at myself and how do I get on with myself? Like, like it's the idea of loving yourself. I, I get yeah. it. I, I can see the, I see the central premise is lovely of it, but I think the greater challenge is that like, I can be compassionate yeah. for myself and to others, but actually what I would like to be is I, I'd like to like myself. I just, I'd like to be friends with myself. Uh, and yeah. again, that's one of the lessons that I, I learned from everything that I went through was if I can just like myself and I can be compassionate to myself and, and, and arguably more importantly to, to other people, um, then it certainly was not in, in vain. Totally. I, I absolutely agree with you. And you're right. It's, it's also like when somebody says, um, you know, you, it's, it's, it's positive, you know, talking positively to yourself as well. So it's when people say you wouldn't ever say, you know, certain things that you might say to yourself, to your friends. So almost if you consider yourself your friend, you wouldn't say certain negative things to them. So you're not going to say it to yourself. So it's, it's a different way of loving yourself. It's, it's treating yourself like a friend again. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Yeah, you know, you nailed it. You nailed it. Um, that's that's exactly what it is. Um, <laughs> no, you nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> I sometimes struggle yeah. to explain it or articulate it very um, uh, particularly well, um, and it's it's nice when I can bounce it off other people and yeah, and, and they can they can give me their interpretation. Yeah. It's great when it when it resonates. Um, mm. So yeah, I, I suppose. Yeah. Those elements have been, yeah, central to central mm -hmm. to my recovery, and I, I think the important part of recovery also is is the resilience yeah. that we as individuals 
developed like through your experience um i i remember listening to you know one of your previous podcasts and you talked about the um the moment of like you know putting your your shoes on and stuff like that um and being able to do that for the first time and i was i was i wasn't i was i was kind of chuckling because i remember that moment myself um and because i live in the tropics we were obviously wear flip-flops and i remember like trying to push this flip-flop around but my 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 foot had swollen up so much that i couldn't jam it onto my foot but then i couldn't mm-hmm. lean down to put it on um uh, and i remember being razor like focused mm-hmm. it's like if i can just do this one thing today it's going to be a success um and yeah you know what that's every every time i put a flip-flop on uh, which is which is every day um not every time but more often than not i i have a little like a little memory yeah. that goes back going remember when you couldn't put your flip flops on um you were trying to jam your feet into it and it's it's true it, yeah. it, it, it reminds me <laughs> it forms part of who i am today and and that and that yeah. resilience that we yeah. we develop uh and i think and i i, I don't know if you agree yeah. but i i think part of well, i think part of the joy of this podcast is that um there is something about thriving afterwards um and understanding what that resilience is and what that hope can be that you were doing through this podcast which i find um so exciting and 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 it's such an important message to give to give individuals hope um because often when it feels like everything is falling apart often it's actually really coming together but we just need to give it the space to mm-hmm. do that yeah that is a uh, that again hit the nail on the head it is it is you think everything's falling apart but yeah, if you just wait, you'll see that it's it's uh, opening doors to things that you never, ever, ever, ever thought would happen. And it is all coming together. Yeah, well, I'm here on this podcast with you now, so. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and that's actually one of the most beautiful things is had uh you know you i not been through what we'd been through we wouldn't be sitting here right now doing this and that is something that i love they're you know meeting people from all over the world with their own stories and hearing their own you know their own views and recoveries and where they are now and their own life lessons and it's just it's also just you know having a nice chat with someone for an hour or so it's it's a really great thing yeah it's beautiful um and you know as someone who works in mental health um often i'm asking yeah. the questions so for me it's kind of a slightly weird juxtaposition because actually it's you know it's me talking about <laughs> myself which is something i'm you know i i don't i don't usually i don't usually i don't usually do so it's been a, uh it's been an interesting uh experience yeah. for me and also there's there's something beautiful about memorializing um the individuals that played a role mm. in those experiences that um unfortunately have died um but remembering remembering them um and remembering that uh they helped enable and create something positive and I I'm, I'm a great believer that you know people who come into our lives and and leave our lives leave an indelible mark um and it's up to us what we do with that uh and yeah. we can we can use it for 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 great positivity uh, and i think that's really important and and the first step to doing that is is kind of the compassion piece as well no for sure for sure is there anything else that you want to discuss today well, I think I've covered a fair a, a fair amount. Um, uh, I'm just trying to think if there's uh, anything else. Um, <laughs> do you have any questions for me? I suppose is what I should really be asking. 
Uh, I just wanted to ask one thing, actually. Uh, I just wanted to ask if you had um, kind of any advice, because I love to finish these with a piece of advice. Um, and obviously, you know, your story has lots of twists and turns. So there wouldn't be one specific thing to focus on. But if you did have advice for somebody that's that's going through a dark time um, and before they get to where you are, kind of they come to you, what would you say to them? I think when we are in that phase of enduring, um, mm -hmm. it can be it can be so hard uh, to to see where the shards of optimism and, and light might be, um, and the reason often is because we are effectively getting in our own getting in our own way. My, my advice would be to look for those little brief moments of, uh, of joy. And they can be so small. I've talked to you about mindfulness, but you know, when you pick up an apple, do you just shove it in your mouth and just eat it? Or do you pick it up and go, that's a green apple. I like green apples. Um, why do I like green apples? Because they have a slightly more acidic taste. So, like, be mindful of just the simplest things, whether it's seeing a robin in your garden and the sign of autumn or spring. If you see something in your life that you might just consider as day-to-day -day and familiar, try and be mindful of the smallest, smallest things in your life that might seem mundane. And mm -hmm. in that mundanity, in, the, in, in that little moment, whether it's a, a bird in a hedge or whether it's just noticing the verdant green of your lawn or whether it's noticing the fact that the guy who drives the bus smiles at you when you get on the bus in the morning, whether it's however small it is, just be mindful of it. And if you can be mindful of those small, tiny things in life, mm -hmm. you will see how much beauty there really is out there. Whether it's the smell of, you know, mm -hmm. the countryside, whether it's just the way that the sun rises or the sun sets, I guarantee you and I promise you there is beauty in every facet of this life. And we just need to be mindful of it and we need to be looking for it. In our dark moments, we forget to look. And often, even when we're doing well, we forget to look. Mm. So I would say look for the mm. small things in life because they are there, I promise you. And when you notice them, I promise you that you will smile. And in that smile lies your power, lies your response because you will stop reacting and you will respond to things. Yeah, that uh, that's beautiful. That's, that's the most perfect way to finish this. This is beautiful. Thank you. Thank you, Robert. It was a pleasure having you on the show. And it is really interesting to understand a little more about why some people are so optimistic after a trauma. Often though, when it feels like everything is falling apart, it's actually really coming together, but we just need to give it space to do that. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next time. And until then, definitely check out the Beekeeper House.